interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. Well, good morning. All right. <laughs> I was trying to be nice. Let's be a little rough now. Hey, good morning. It's uh, good to be together on this uh, beautiful, beautiful February morning. So as you work your way to your seats, we want to just uh, celebrate the fact that uh, you can turn that music off and uh, uh, celebrate the fact that it's snowing major snowstorm in Philadelphia and not here in Ithaca. I know uh, Bill Edgar and his wife Barbara uh, really wanted to see snow, and so they came up here and... uh, so when they go home, they're going to have to shovel snow, which is a really a novel thought, isn't it, Bill? It's a, it's a privilege to uh, have uh, Dr. William Edgar here from uh, Westminster. He's done a, a lot of thinking about culture and about the uh, importance of Christians as we are placed in many different locations in our world and in our culture, what it means to be God's people. He's thought a lot about entertainment and how it impacts the church and the world. And so today we're going to look at some very um, great topics. And uh, I'm just glad uh, Bill has uh, come up. Uh, to Ithaca for this institute, and you will notice uh, in your packet that there are a number of um, pieces of information. You will have a section to take notes for this and every uh, segment, and so we are glad that uh, you are here. Take some notes. Uh, We have opportunity for questions and answers, and uh, particularly a a, a three-by-five cards there. So along the way, if you'd like to ask a question uh, and have it answered, um, then jot it down and we'll work it uh, at the end of the day. Um, this is a great day, and we're here to, uh, to think thoughts that God might have us think as God's people uh, in our world today. So let's pray. Father, on this beautiful morning, uh, we come from many different locations, many different homes, many different situations, and we open our hearts to you, the giver of truth, the lover of our souls. Our Father in heaven, we, we count it a privilege to wrestle with your word and to think thoughts that you have communicated and to apply them in the world in which we live, in the cultures that we are from. So this morning, as uh, Bill comes to speak to us, we 
First and foremost, honor your name. We give you thanks for pursuing us in Jesus Christ. We give you thanks that you have called us to be your children, to be a family that lives out your ethics and your values in this world. We give you thanks for the work of your spirit in our lives that is constantly challenging us to see Christ more clearly and then empowering us to live for the praise of his glory. And so this morning as we come together, we give you thanks for your work in our lives and we give you thanks for each other. And we come to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now it's our privilege uh, to have uh, Bill come and speak, and then we'll have some questions and answers and a break, and then we'll come back again, and so we are glad you're here. Bill, come on. Thank you very much. It's wonderful to be here. Indeed, um... For practical purposes, snow is not the best thing ever invented, but it sure um, it sure helps for aesthetic purposes. Uh, and it's there's something that's nice and quiet and cleansing about snow, just at least for for a bit. Um, one of the one of my greatest pleasures is uh, starting off on a ski slope and just stopping before you go down and just listening. And there's no truck sounds or airplane sounds or whatever it's just quiet um and it's so, such a contrast to the world in which most of us live um my brother was at a dinner party not too long ago where they played a game called the grandmother game now this was a game where they went around the table trying to think what would have surprised my grandmother if she still were alive or even if she is alive. What does surprise her? And um, they got a lot of interesting answers. Um, One person said my grandmother would have been surprised at emails and how you can, you know, you don't have to pick up the phone and dial and so forth, but you can instantly communicate with anybody, anywhere, or text messaging, things like that. Um, Other answers included obvious things like being able to travel and get to some place as fast as you want and uh, conveniently and and, and so on. But one person said, you know, none of those things would have really surprised my grandmother. She would have understood that this was the direction things were going. And so you speed it up a little bit, you add a little technology, and um, you'll get things like emails and text messaging and, and, and so forth. What would have surprised my grandmother is the inability of science and money to solve the AIDS problem. And uh, I think my grandmother would have been in that um, club that science and money should be able to solve anything, shouldn't it? And uh, it hasn't been able to come close with this pandemic. Of course, there are some um, palliative uh, answers and there's some progress being made, but 
uh, compared to the size of the problem, it's been remarkably impotent. My, I have spent probably a lifetime studying the issue of change. What can really affect change? What are the impediments to change? Um, and I suppose some of this comes from the era I grew up in. I grew up after the Second World War. My father was in what they called the greatest generation uh, because he had very high ideals, fought for his country, came back, didn't want his children to know some of the difficulties and challenges that, that he had faced, um, which could be argued to be a, a parental mistake, of course. But he um, gave us a wonderful uh, uh, childhood, and um, something was missing. I um, was um, not happy with the answers coming from the greatest generation, though I had great admiration. It didn't seem to me obvious that um, the West or the American way or the kinds of freedoms that uh, were being preached was uh, the deepest answers I could be looking for. And so, um, as a pretty typical child of the 50s and 60s, I had more questions than answers. And uh, my life was turned upside down, or should I say right side up. Uh, over 40 years ago, uh, Juanita can testify to this, um, it, uh, in a little village high up in the Swiss Alps, where I encountered some Christians uh, led by two people who had a lasting influence on my life, um, Francis Schaeffer and Hans Ruckmacher. And um, because everything there changed for me and I got some answers and I was able to um, go beyond where I thought I was from the teachings of the greatest generation, I guess since change is a fundamental part of my own identity, it's maybe understandable that I've been preoccupied with it over the decades. Now, a lot happened since the days when I wandered up with a lot of people to Labrie and heard the Christian message. Uh, the 60s were um, a time of great upheaval, and um, with the soundtrack ranging from the Rolling Stones to Jimi Hendrix and um, issues that were troubling to all of us, I didn't have all the answers, but I had some, an anchor there. And of course, as people did who started at Labrie in the 60s, I thought that it would be a short time before we would see everything change. And um, part of the lesson of, of life for me, and I think for most of us, is um, 40 years later, um, You've been beaten up a little bit. Uh, the things that you tried to do uh, didn't have the effect you thought they should. Some of us even could imitate Dr. Schaefer perfectly, um, including the way he dressed. And we thought, well, that should, that should do it. And, uh, <laughs> but um, we had forgotten that uh, for him it was something he had owned through years of wrestling with God and experience and, and so forth. Plus, he was in a community where everything conspired to um, proclaim the, the love and the sovereignty of God. 
um, going up there as an agnostic uh, was was kind of challenging. When you looked over at the Swiss Alps and you saw the Alpine Rouge at the at the sunset, um, it didn't seem as likely that there were no God than um, it was when you could imagine uh, life without this kind of amazing background. So. I guess I'd have to say that much of my life has been a reassessment of change, a reassessment of, of what it is. And I'm happy to say that in my 60s, I still believe in change. And I've done a lot of reflection on uh, what, it's, what it's going to look like and what it's not going to look like. Here's a beautiful poem by John Donne. Likeness glues love. And if that be so, do, to make us like and love, must I change too? To live in one land is captivity. To run all countries a wild roguery. Waters stink soon if in one place they bide. And in the vast sea are more putrefied. But when they kiss one bank, and leaving this, never look back, but the next bank do kiss, then they are purest. Change is the nursery of music, joy, life, and eternity. And I've come to believe that change is indeed the nursery of music, joy, life, and eternity. And, but not any change, not the change that he calls wild roguery running all countries, to which I think we've become slaves. I'll say a little bit more about that in the second talk on entertainment, um, and some of it is pretty obvious. But nevertheless, there cha real change is like the waters that kiss one bank and then the other. And I think as we grow, whether we grow in the Christian life or simply just grow in our a destined life cycle, uh, we, re we realize the, the marvelous um, way in which the most stable things are good as long as they can encounter challenges and uh, sometimes threats and be tested and be tried and be shown to be true. Now, one of the great lessons I think most of us who started at Labrie in the early 60s um, is the lesson of sobriety. Some have slouched into cynicism. And it's understandable. There was so much enthusiasm there, so much excitement about how Christianity is a worldview that applies to all of life and can change the world, that um, when you get knocked around a little bit and you see it's not happening, at least the way you thought it was supposed to, um, it's tempting to become... Uh, cynical. And I've begun to think that the way to avoid cynicism is uh, twofold. The first is to avoid unhelpful models. And um, the second is to be reminded of the gospel. For me, the most unhelpful model to affect cultural change is the image of the culture wars. You can say this in different ways. <clears throat> One um, description of the culture wars would be that 
America and maybe the West, if not the whole world, are divided into two camps. Uh, one could be described as the more conservative camp, which would probably tend to have a greater number of believers in it. For some, it's the same thing. The other would be the more progressive um, liberal camp. And you can hear different exponents of these culture wars uh, saying, you know, on the conservative side, you would have much more concern for life. You'd have much more concern for legislation that protects children. Um, the kind of standard issues that conservative people would, would believe. On the more progressive side, maybe greater care for race questions, for education, for the environment. And um, when some Christians, and I'm not going to name anybody here uh, because it's not edifying, but when some Christians use the image of the culture war, it's we versus them. Um, and we conservatives either w must win all or not win at all. It's a winner-takes-all image. And we will know that we have won when we see a country or a society almost in a utopian way become a believing society. Um, now, of course, the tr there are lots of problems with the culture war model. And I'll get to what I think is a much healthier alternative in a, in a moment. But one of the troubles with it is that it is Manichaean. It pits darkness against light in one kind of single battle. In other words, there are, there are the good guys, the bad guys. And um, if the good guys aren't doing so well, well, you justify that theologically by saying, you know, it's going to be tough. Uh, the days are getting darker. Will the Son of Man find faith when he comes back to earth? Um, one pundit of the culture wars model even wrote a famous letter, which he claims was misunderstood, but I've, re you know, I've looked at it and I'm not sure it was misunderstood, to his constituency saying, you know what, we made a big mistake going into politics and into places of power. Uh, we, we, we shouldn't do that. Let's go back and, and, and wait it out and, uh, in our churches and, and, and just sit it out because getting into the culture is, um, is, a, is a strategic mistake. We're, we're exchanging human power for divine power. So when you're, you sense defeat, you justify it theologically or you say, Let, you know, we made a mistake about our strategy. Or when you sense victory, you begin to say, you know, isn't it, look at all the statistics Look at how well things are going. Um, you get editorialists who are writing about how uh, young people are not quite as promiscuous or how movies are more censored and so forth. And you, you, you begin to uh, quantify success in an across-the-board way. Now, I believe, of course, that the Bible does speak of a spiritual battle. And I think we've been in that spiritual battle since... Uh, the days just after the fall, um, where God promised that the seed of the serpent would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, but that the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the seed of the serpent. Now that's conflict woven into the warp and woof of history. But I'm not sure it can be so identified as a culture war. The other thing that's wrong with the culture war model is 
that I think it misses the heart of the gospel, which is to change not just individuals from unbeliever to believer, but to be an agent for the transformation of culture. Above all, our concern should be to begin and end where our whole purpose for life begins and ends. Gerhardus Voss once said this, to be a Christian is to live one's life not merely in obedience to God, not merely in dependence on God, not even merely for the sake of God. It is to stand in conscious reciprocal fellowship with God, to be identified with Him in thought and in purpose and in work, to receive from Him and to give back to him in ceaseless in the ceaseless interplay of spiritual forces in other words when we're in relationship with god it is not simply that we are saved for eternity which is a, a huge blessing but is that our thought and our purpose and our work are revolutionized and from this fundamental change everything else changes. It's for a much larger purpose than the culture war model would portray, that Christ died and was raised from the dead. He was raised for the, from the dead for our justification, but also to give us power, not just individually to overcome individual sins, which is important as it could be, but power to see change in history, in structures, in hidden places, in deep places. Now, this change doesn't always occur because we consciously push the right button. We, of course, must strategize. We must pray. We must think responsibly about where we should go in order to see some change. But the change is actually in, in God's hands, as, as we would, of course, understand. Um, one of the changes would be what Oz Guinness calls rebounds, um, or God's revenge. Um, let me give you just one example of this, and it's one that I think we could all kind of identify with. Um, the predictions in the 60s, when I was a young man, by many, many academics, is that um, we are moving in a direction of secularization. And um, what you might call the simple secularization thesis was that as we acquire more maturity, as we acquire more scientific ability, as we embrace liberal values, enlightenment values more, we will find that we won't need the resources of religion as we had in the past. Harvey Cox um, wrote a landmark book called The Secular City. And his thesis was that history has moved us away from what he called the wreckage of, of religious worldviews. It's moved us from there to good things like urbanization and scientific advances. This is bound to make mankind more responsible. 
How he defined secularization was typical of the times in the mid-60s. It is the deliverance of man first from religious and then from metaphysical control over his reason and language. Now, this seems rather dated today. Um, Jacques Ellul, the, the French thinker, powerfully answered him in his book, The New Demons. The French title is The New, New Possessed. And uh, Jacques Ellul proposed the counter-thesis that said secularization is an impossibility because of who we are. The vocabulary of the religion might change. For example, we might be less Christian, but it won't remove faith. It'll substitute for Christian faith, faith in other things, such as technology. That was his big um, concern. Uh, or things like nation-building or hedonism. Now, I think Elul went too far, and there's some flaws in his thinking. And also, in fairness, Harvey Cox has modified his position in the light of events. Um, but it was um, one of those reversals that uh, Christians could, should have been able to predict. But sometimes I think they were intimidated, intimidated. A host of studies have tackled the cobweb of secularization issues since that debate. One of the most significant is uh, Jose Casanova's Public Religions in the Modern World, uh, 1994. His particular task was to show that religion functions publicly for good or for ill because it cannot be contained in the private sphere. And that's not because of the way religion is. It's the way we are. And today, it enters the undifferentiated public sphere of civil society and takes part in the ongoing process of contesting, discursive legitimation, and the redrawing of boundaries. Casanova illustrates with five case studies from Spain, from Poland, from Brazil, and then evangelical Protestant and Catholicism in the U.S. And each of those tells a different story about the way religion has played a critical role for change, even in the public sphere. People are now reluctantly be beginning to recognize it, something that Christians should have recognized a long time ago. In the late 1990s, the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington sponsored a, a memorable conference entitled The De-Secularization of the World, Resurgent Religion and World Politics. Um, the feisty Peter Berger uh, gave the opening address. And um, it began with one of his great mots juste. Um, he noted the publication of an enormous, well-funded project, which was called the Fundamentalism Project. It was a mostly liberal, typically academic assessment of fundamentalism around the world. And um, Berger said, why did such a study need to be made? And uh, he answers that for the academic world, fundamentalism, which usually means somebody who believes something, um, is thought of as a strange, rare, hard-to-understand phenomenon. It's a curiosity. 
Berger says a look at either history or at con the contemporary world reveals that what is rare is not the phenomenon itself, but the knowledge of it. In fact, he said the, the difficult to understand phenomenon is not Iranian mullahs or American fundamentalists, but American university professors. And then he adds, it might be worth a multi-million dollar project to try to explain that. Um, in other words, um, it's, it's a no-brain, obvious phenomenon that um, people are religious. And religion is, of course, having its revenge in a big way. Uh, I remember we, were, we had just moved to France when the Iranian re Revolution uh, took over. And there was, you remember, those American hostages were, were captured for 444 days. I don't know why I remember that, but that's what it was. And um, they, uh, they finally were, were, were liberated. But um, I remember reading, our paper was the, the International Herald Tribune, which is a wonderful paper. Um, but I remember reading the uh, editorials. And most of the ones coming from the uh, State Department were utterly puzzled by the phenomenon of an Iranian Islamic revolution. Why would these people who were so much on their way towards progress and westernization and the Shah was such a good friend of America. Why would they want to go backwards um, to, to religion? And, and, and well, you know, Christians should have been able to say, we're not going backwards to religion. We're religious beings. There are religions that are oppressive and that um, are extreme. Uh, but um, going to religion is not going backwards. So there are ways in which God himself brings change and we need to have our eyes opened to that, which go contrary to many of the predictions of secularists. A similar a change, which I've studied a lot, uh, has occurred also in the academy, but beyond the academy, in the assessment of beauty. Um, interestingly, in the 70s and 80s, the concept of beauty was considered more or less out of bounds, or worse. Um, the, um, the idea was that if you declared something beautiful, first of all, you probably were being supercilious. You had a power trip over the thing. Uh, you were oppressive. Many people would say to call something beautiful was to, be, to participate in oppression over, over the work of art. And the argument was, I have the ability to judge, whereas you shouldn't do that. Everything has its own place. And um, it, it got so ridiculous that even in various college courses on literature, if somebody read a poem the way I just read you, you one and said, oh, isn't it beautiful, there would be giggles and laughs, and we don't say that today. And uh, this had to do, I won't go into the background of it, with a whole trend in um, hermeneutical philosophy, uh, which had, which was a, a in itself a, a somewhat healthy reaction to just art for art's sake, uh, but it got, went way to the other extreme. And um, in the 90s, we had what one person called the revenge of the aesthetic. Beauty came back. People like Elaine Scarry at Harvard, um, coming from a kind of Kantian background, said, "Wait a minute, calling something beautiful isn't." oppressive. And she noted the 
English language has the same word for um, something just and something beautiful in the word fair. If you call something fair, you say it, it's, it's lovely, but, it, but you also are calling attention to the justice of it. And uh, she said, far from being oppressive, those who search for beauty may be searching uh, for, for justice, and when they find it, it may be very humbling. She, she recounts um, Dante moving up uh, through the circles of hell and up through the Purgatorio and the, the Paradiso. When he encounters Beatrice, he's, he's awestruck. He's, he's humbled. He's not um, oppressive. And, uh, and so now, you know, we're happy to say that it's okay, once again, uh, to talk about beauty in places where you, sh- you shouldn't do that. Um, now, my simple point here is that um, the gospel, which is God's everlasting surprise, as George Filofsky once put it, is going to be a continuing surprise as a power in the world. Um, some of us individually were surprised by the gospel. But um, the gospel of Christ is, is God's um, cosmic surprise. Here we have um, a, a rebellious human race. And um, how can God be just and yet justify the ungodly? He gives us um, the surprise answer. I'm using that in, you know, cautiously. No surprise to him but the amazing answer of the death of his son and his resurrection, the incarnation and, 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 and so forth. But this surprise doesn't just stop at the cross. It continues to turn the world upside down, as it did in the book of Acts, and as it has done for over 2,000 years in, in world history. It isn't always measurable and track, we can't always track it. Uh, it's not always visible in ways we'd like it to be. Uh, but it, it continues to be an evident surprise. And one witness to it is these, these great reversals, uh, the, the, the reversal of our assessment of secularization, the reversal in our sec- assessment of beauty. Now, <clears throat> there is, therefore, a fundamental problem with the culture war model. It's too simple. It's too black and white. And yet... The surprise element in the cosmic battle still has to be there. How are we going to think about it? How are we going to look at this? My thesis for you this morning would be there is no one silver bullet. There is no one culture war. There isn't a winner takes all. But there's something much deeper, much more powerful, ultimately. And that is to recognize the power and the surprise of God's ability to change in many, many different spheres of life. Um, My own uh, orientation here, you'll recognize, comes inspired largely by um, Abraham Kuyper, the great uh, Dutch theologian and apologist and politician of the 19th century, with some modifications. I think he has helped us, and people like Francis Schaeffer, who had such an influence on me, embraced a lot of what he was doing, to think about the variety of institutions and structures in God's creation. And that you don't 
change that by waving one magic wand over the whole thing, but you change it one sphere at a time, one institution at a time, one problem at a time. While the church is a crucial part of that structure, and one could even argue it's the, it's the place for excellence where God speaks and is followed by believers. Nevertheless, the church is only one sphere in the larger picture of the creation. And to reduce all of the action to the one sphere of the church, marvelous as that institution is, is to be blind to the rich diversity of God's creation. When um, our first parents were created, their calling was to go and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and do it all for the glory of God under his blessing. And while there was something critical and, and fundamental um, in the, the pause that's required one day out of seven to worship God in a concentrated manner, that's not the only place and the only way you worship God. But you're to worship God as you go out as prophets, priests, and kings that we are in every sphere of life, whether it be the family or the school or scientific inquiry or political action. And furthermore, these different institutions and these different callings have somewhat different norms. So for example, if I'm a politician and I'm a Christian, my primary job as a po politician is not to hope for opportunities to share the gospel with um, the neighbor at the desk next door. If that opportunity comes, praise God. But my primary job um, is to um, do legislation that brings biblical principles of justice to a very mixed society, whatever that's going to look like. I have a friend who's a, a wonderful musician. I won't give you his name. He's a world-class musician and um, a very conservative Christian. And he was in Philadelphia, gave a concert once, and I had the privilege of sitting at dinner next to him, uh, sat, sat with him at the dinner table afterwards. And I asked him, how does he operate as a Christian in the performance world? And he said, Something kind of cryptic, which I asked him to unpack. He said, I don't give away my strategy to the enemy. I thought, you know, enemy? What's um, this guy's the nicest guy in the world. He couldn't have any. Uh, so what he, what he said is, what I do is I play as well as I know how, and then I hope that after the concert, people will come up to me and will ask if there's any source to my playing, and I'll say, yes, there is, and I'll give them the tape. He had a little cassette tape that he gave to everybody of his own testimony. Well, that's fine, except that he said something kind of sad after that. He said, I don't feel I've done my day's work and can go home and rest until I've had at least one opportunity to give that tape out. He was justifying his music by, in my opinion, crossing the line to another sphere, the sphere of evangelism. Now, we're all supposed to take opportunities to evangelize and ask, uh, when, when people ask us questions, give them answers. But we don't work as scientists 
legislators, musicians, as a sort of front. Um, we work in God's creation. And God's creation is a good place to work. It's a fallen world. But we're here trying to bring the norms of faithfulness to his principles in every sphere of life. And we don't justify everything by evangelism. I'm sure you've heard this before. I know this is what the, the church here teaches and, and the Chesterton Institute teach. But the great American Christian public uh, is, is really wrestling with that. And there's a particular popular theology coming out that's saying the church is it. The church is the healing community which has to be a model for everything else. And this poor man who said, who wrote to his constituency and said, you know, we made a mistake going into politics. Let's get back to the church. Um, what happened is he did the wrong politics. Not that he shouldn't have been there and then realized he was in the wrong place. Because politics is a critical place for Christians to be. Um, but they're not there to force confessions on the wider society. They're there as politicians to do statecraft and politics for God's glory, which wonderfully overlaps with evangelism, but it isn't the same thing. Now, if there is no silver bullet, but only working quietly with our hands in each sphere where God has called us, um, where are some of the primary challenges going to be? Um, you know, I have long lists of where I think a lot of them are going to be. Uh, let me just um, let me just name one of them, because I think it's w among the more critical. And it's a, it's a truism. Everybody has uh, been speaking about this. It is in the move from a generally more rural world to a generally more urban world. It is a move not only just to urbanization, um, but to uh, cities, world-class cities or global cities, which I think will increasingly um, be at the center of where change needs to occur. Now, um, I don't want to say this in such a way as to denigrate the country. Um, we wrestle with this where I teach all the time at Westminster. We train uh, leaders for the church, and uh, um, we're, we have a big emphasis on urban missions. And sometimes we'll get leaders from the more rural church and say, well, what about us? And we try to say, yes, is an important place for the country. But the center of gravity is moving towards the city, as um, any kind of measure would indicate. And that's going to mean we have to reassess what the city is and then reassess how we use the city to have an impact. It so happens that the Bible wonderfully tells us in its historiography that the general plan is to move from the Garden of Eden to the city of Jerusalem. And so the Bible talks about an eschatology that is urbanizing. So if we recognize and endorse urbanization, we're, we're in the right program, which is, is, is good. Um, many Christians fear urbanization with understandable fears because they have caricatured the city as the place where bad things happen. And you'll, you'll hear people saying most of the crime is in the cities. And you'll hear people saying that cities are impersonal. 
You, you live together, but you don't know each other. Um, cities are centers of power, and uh, power is bad, and so forth. It is no coincidence that the thugs that uh, took out the Twin Towers in, in New York using um, human beings as, as their um, weapons chose a world-class city and chose two buildings that were symbols of um, economic man. Not much poetry in those buildings. Um, not much room for beauty and for religion. And uh, this view of the city is very, is very common. But um, take another look. The, the biblical theology of the city includes the right place for uh, leadership in the world. Indeed, in the Bible, the, um, the king often is a king enthroned in the city. And the curious and fascinating thing is that he does it not by giving up the country or by giving up the garden, but by becoming a gardener king. I have a colleague uh, at Westminster who's a specialist in this area, and so I'm not um, making any of this up. Uh, <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> He, he has made a, a, a lifelong study of um, the cities in the, in the ancient world, and particularly as it affects the cities in the Bible. And he's come to the conclusion that the ideal king is a gardener king. And I can give you lots of biblical references from Jeremiah and other places, whereby uh, the, the great kings had, had enormous gardens. They brought life into the city in that way. And so the city in the Bible is not just this secular place, this empty place, but it is a, ce a center for um, a godly and beautiful power. And at its best, the city can still be that. Now, of course, we, we're far away from, from some of that today, aren't we? But um, it may be that in times like the Renaissance, uh, we, were, we were much closer to this model. In timeless cities, an architect's reflections on Renaissance Italy, uh, the author David Meyernick argues that the culture of modernity with its urban expression is somehow much less able to provide that wonderful worldview and those social structures which are needed to promote true beauty and memory and hope and grounding citizens in a sacred order than was the case at the time of the Renaissance. And um, he examines places like uh, Venice and Florence, Siena, Pienza, and he argues that such urban centers were the locations of an almost sacramental series of relationships between the cosmos, the city, and the human person. He writes this, For city builders for more than a thousand years after Augustine, the urban realm became a great memory theater where our best aspirations were played out. The place where we said the most substantial things about who we are and what we long for. The city at best was... Uh, but we realized we were giving maybe the false impression that real thinking is done when you're away in a beautiful place rather than where the center of change is. So our, our latest strategy is to try to bring this Trinity Forum into world-class cities and organize a semi-permanent networks in those cities where we can teach and where we can affect leaders at where they are. So it's not just a so-called mountaintop experience 
uh, for them. Will this work? Uh, we will have to see. Um, but um, we're trying to recognize uh, the role of the city in this. Now, um, if that is true, oh, but let me, one kind of fun parenthesis uh, here about the, uh, about the city. Um, this same colleague of mine who has done so much study about the, uh, the way in which uh, this, the gardener king is um, is the is the biblical model for for uh, the, the great heavenly kingdom to come. Has pointed out that um, you know when the the women come to the tomb at, um, Sunday morning, Easter Sunday morning, and um, Jesus is not is not in the tomb. Um, they meet someone, and um, is it in Matthew's gospel where it says, supposing him to be the gardener. And, uh, well, he was. He was the gardener king. And that's not just a, um, a throwaway line. Um, the, 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 the theologians of the New Testament knew very well um, what the fabric was from, um, from, the, from the Bible and, and how the king would be a gardener king. Anyway, that's just a parenthesis. Um, the, the city is, is the place where, where God's likely to use... Um, structures of, of change and effect of significant uh, moving and shaking. Of course, it is somewhat of a threatening place. Of course, there are issues in the city. And of course, um, you, you, you've got to take great care. Um, but this is a place where we can expect change. Now, who are the agents of change going to be? Well, that as well is God's surprise. Um, sometimes the agents of change are biblical scholars who rediscovered justification by faith, just as Martin Luther did and was able to bring an amazing change in the whole fabric of German and European society. Um, often, the agents of change are outsiders. Um, let me give you a rather kind of you'll think maybe unique, uh, strange example, uh, but it brings out some principles that I think are important for us as Christians. Um, it is the way in which the life of the blind was changed by the only important technical innovation in travel for them in a whole hundred years or more, which is the long cane method. The long cane is the invention of a Dr. Richard Hoover, and it consists in replacing the old orthopedic cane with a light long cane, the purpose of which is to sense the environment rather than to serve as a support. And of course, we're, we're so used to this that it seems that's obvious, but it was not always so obvious. Um, the long Hoover, a former physician um, and uh, phys, phys ed instructor, uh, developed the cane while he was serving in the army. And uh, he was in a group just after the Second World War of veterans who had become blind because of, um, of the war, some accident in the war. At the time, the accepted practice in the blindness system was to assume that the blind have little capacity for travel, and that what little, with such little capacity, 
um, you needed a lot of instruction from a teacher who was probably himself blind. And um, what happened is two things. First, a group of blind veterans who were completely vigorous and healthy um, said that this wasn't fair. They didn't see much rehabilitation had been prepared for them. And um, they formed a network. Now, one agent of change that I think we have to recognize if we're going to be faithful Christians is the importance of networks. Um, William Wilberforce, the great reformer of slavery in the 19th century in Great Britain, would not have been able to do what he did without the network of his supporters that was known as the Clapham sect. They prayed together, they urged him to continue, they gave him arguments, suggestions, they did Bible studies. Uh, no significant change is likely to occur without some group, some network. Now, in this case, the network was the needy people, and that's often the case as well. Second, the agent of change is often going to be a champion, possibly an outsider, possibly a suffering outsider, as Hoover was. Um, Hoover had previously worked in blindness agencies, but merely as a fit ed instructor. And then, second, the invention was precipitated by a dislocating, crisis-like event for which the system had no prepared response. He came in and in an almost prophetic way said, this is what we need. And he invented something pretty obvious, which is the long cane. Now, switch this over to what we want to do as Christians. Um, some of us are called into um, working with the disabled. And um, some of us are so called because uh, we've been hurt or we have a concern. Um, we're advocates. Um, the book of James, you know, tells us that true religion is this, that we visit the widows, the fatherless, the orphans, um, the word visit in James, it doesn't just mean like go see somebody on Sunday. Um, it actually, it's a very strong word. It means bring justice, bring redemptive love. And it is a, it is a concern that all Christians ought to have for those who are um, disabled or have no access to power. Uh, Hoover was such a man... And then we need to work in networks, not just as in, in, in solo manners. Um, last, and let me just finish with this, if we're going to be God's agents of change and we're going to bring the surprise of the gospel to different spheres of life in our, in our generation, we not only are going to have to be patient and recognize the, that God's timing or not ours, but we're going to have to recognize this multiplicity of opportunities. We're going to have to recognize layering. Um, sometimes we want to see change in, a, in such a measurable way that we're only looking at the surface, and we're only we're seeing change when X number of people um, refuse uh, to compromise. When 
uh, a measurable group of people uh, will uh, rebel against some bad practice. Um, when certain products are purchased by X number of people and so forth, that is merely surface, deep-rooted, underlying change, just as it is in our individual lives, is sometimes very hard to see. And so the lesson that I, I'm trying to learn in my 60s, is st I'm still not very good at it, um, the lesson that was hard to pick up at Labrie because there was such enthusiasm there is um, work quietly with your hands, be patient, um, cultivate competence, don't be afraid to get out there and be judged by your peers um, and to be told, you know, you're all wet and go back to the drawing boards. Don't huddle. Um, recognize how change occurs uh, from deep, deep layers um, and not simply at the surface. Um, and then I think two things will happen. First, we'll have a greater quietness of soul. One of, I think, my besetting sins is, um, maybe it's a control issue, I don't know, but I want to see change so badly that I'm restless, um, and that I'm frenetically trying to push buttons and make things happen, almost as though God were a vending machine. You know, you put your quarters in, now it's dollars, I guess, and uh, if the Coke doesn't come out, you kick it, you know, and it's, something's wrong with it. Um, uh, no, uh, we, we ought n never to rest, of course, always to fight the good fight. But if I can say this um, kind of theologically correctly, with a, pro a proper kind of confidence, um, God is God, not me. He is far more interested in change than I am. And he has given me my little place of operation to do my little thing. And um, in the big scheme of things, it's not so little. Um, I am not the Messiah. We in the church are not the Messiah. Christ is the Messiah. And uh, it's very hard, I think, in a world which tells us in so many ways, all you have to do is this, you know, and everything will change for you. Simply, quietly to rely on God's timing. Uh, what's the old spiritual? Um, he don't come when you want him to, but he's always right on time. And then second, as we do, we'll learn that uh, God wants us to be agents of change in the world. Because he wants something more for us than to see good things happen in the world. He wants for us to get to know him as the loving God whose love is the source of the desire for all change. His final goal for us is not to, just that we see change, but that we be so changed that we see Him. His final goal for us is fellowship and communion with us. How can this be? How can the great God of the universe want my friendship? What's it worth to Him? I don't know. But I do know that he has done everything way beyond what we could possibly imagine to win my friendship. And if I forget that in the bargain, um, God who brings change and brings fruit is more important even than the fruit and in the change, then I've forgotten the heart of the gospel. I've forgotten what God wants 
for me. He wants for me to have communion with him. And um, I don't know if God prioritizes values that way, uh, but if he did, he would put our loyalty to him, our love for him, our friendship with him, our communion with him, even above visible, tangible results, which will, of course, come because he does want that. So, back to the grandmother, the grandmother game. What would surprise your grandmother? Is it the inability of science and money to change the world? Yeah. But it should be the unlikeliness of God's love for a world that is bent on rebelling against him. That's the real surprise. It's the surprise of the gospel that God would take such corruption and such unloveliness and change it, not just so that there could be improvement, but so that he could have people come into his bosom and love him and have communion with him and enjoy him forever. This is the gospel. And uh, who would want anything else? Thank you. Well, the ancient king um, not only would have a garden as a display of his um, wonderful uh, ability, um, not only as a collection of wild things and flowers and animals and so forth, but as a symbol of life. Which is why I think in the New Jerusalem, um, there's the tree... Uh, life whose leaves are for the healing of the nations um, and it's why in a sort of a dim way we have you know New York City has Central Park most cities like uh, Philadelphia have, has the Fairmount Park we have parks in our cities which is conceived as, as recreational places but at, at their best they should be symbols of life in the city because the good king um, brings people together urbanization for the purpose of giving them life and healing. And that, that runs right through um, the Old Testament up into the book of Revelation. And I think when we, when we get to the New Jerusalem, we'll be surprised at what a, what a perfect harmony there is between the obvious urban elements. Um, you can even measure the walls and, and the streets are made of various substances. 
um, and the kings bring their treasures in, um, and what we might call the the more um, botanical elements. So it's a it's a symbol of beauty, of, of life-giving, um, of art and, and richness, um, uh, right in the midst of the community. Um, today, sadly, we, we separate the two. You know, urbanization just means nondescript buildings uh, lumped together and, and, you know, transportation systems underground and so forth. And the park is there as a kind of relief. Um, I think in the Bible they go much closer together, and it's the duty of the good king to make sure that his citizens enjoy both the advantages of the community and the communication and the transportation, and uh, the the life-giving source uh, that that is represented in in a garden. Yeah. I do. I think evangelical churches are moving in uh, a direction of recognizing uh, urbanization. In the 50s, there was the famous um, suburban captivity of the church. Uh, now, interestingly, today, the suburbs are not really the same as what they were in the 50s. They are not as a refuge from the city as much as they are urban um, realities of their own, and that's a whole study. But I do see hopeful signs that the church is considering... Uh, the city as a as a place to be. Um, you, know, you know, you can think of some of the obvious examples in our times. Um, we live uh, in Philadelphia, and in our city, we have a number of amazing churches that are establishing points of light in their neighborhoods, and they're doing more than just pre- preaching the gospel from pulpits, but they're building schools and they're helping um, educate people bringing microcredits into the area so that it's not just sucked out by the, the mega companies. Um, New York, you know, you can think of um, the Redeemer Network. Uh, Tim Keller is a remarkable leader in that, and, and he, he's made his whole, he's based his whole life on helping people see the importance of the city. Um, he says, like, if you, if you want to come and help us, don't come because you have uh, a mission or you have a crusade or you have a message for the city, come because you love the city, because God loves the city, and get alongside the ministries that are already there and, and just help them a little bit. I think that's a marvelous attitude. London has the, uh, yeah, there's so many of these, the London City Mission, extraordinary uh, presence in the city of London. You know, without, without our points of light in the cities, I think they would implode. But I think we can do more than just stave off an implosion. I, it, it should become a remarkable place to uh, for, for leverage. Um, and um, so I think it's hopeful. I think we are beginning to see that. Uh, people like Harvey Kahn, uh, who wrote extensively on urban missions as a theologian, are, are getting a hearing. Um, and... Um, uh, you know, there's a lot of work to be done, but I, I do see encouraging signs. Yeah. 
Yeah, sure. Well, that's a wonderful question. Um, how do I uh, justify my position in politics? Uh, if I start saying it's because the Bible says so, you, you're not going to get very far with most politicians. Um, I think there's a question of, of wisdom and persuasion that has always attended politics. And um, in places where a sort of a Judeo-Christian cu culture is still strong, it's perfectly all right to appeal to those sources. In places where it isn't, I'm not sure I would go to natural law, but I'd go to all kinds of um, um, rules that people know because of God's revelation. Um, the book of Romans tells us that you know, we know that these things are wrong, but we do them anyway. Um, and and uh, we know that such things are perversions. Some people would call this natural law. If you want to use that term, that's fine. Um, so you can use uh, all kinds of uh, prudential wisdom arguments without, say, without opening the Bible and reading verses. It's perfectly all right to do that, but you'll, you'll usually, um, in, in many countries in the world of politics, um, you'll lose your, your credibility. Um, the other... I think way to persuade in politics is to treat your opponents humanly. And I have a dear friend, probably some of you, you know him, who was, spent a lot of his life in politics in the state of Maryland. He was a state rep. And um, he, um, he's a pro-life Democrat. And he, uh, when he first was elected, he decided not to make his maiden speech about abortion or pornography because that's predictable um, not that he didn't have strong views about those subjects uh, but he made his first speech about um, care for the environment um, health care for the elderly and uh, youth with drug addictions and um, you know people listened because he wasn't one of these predictable evangelicals. Furthermore, he determined not to dehumanize his opponents, um, which is a temptation uh, to do. You know, when, you, when some Christian politicians talk about, let's say, the abortion issue, um, they demonize their opponents as abortionists. Very few people who believe that abortion is legitimate um, want abortions or love abortions uh, it's usually a very hard choice for them between that and um, women who didn't want to be pregnant and, and, and so forth now I happen to be on the side of the more pro-life arguments on these things but even the use of the word pro-life and pro-choice I think um, is, a, is a culture war battle line which tends to de dehumanize um, our opponents um, so I think a Christian politician will not only speak for justice, appealing to the conscience of the people that still have one because of what Romans 1 says, but will also uh, not um, manipulate, not seek to um, put down or dehumanize his opponents. This, this particular friend of mine, a year later, did make the speech on abortion, and everybody listened, and they started to do something about it in, in, in the state of Maryland. Because that, by then they said, well, we can trust this guy. He's not... Uh, a, you know, a, a fanatic. Um, so, you c it, it, this can be done. And I think it's the same challenge in every sphere of life. You know, it's the same in, in, in music, it's the same in um, science, 
um, uh, you, you have to be wise, prudent, use the persuasion that God has given you, knowing that people have a conscience because God is still God. Easy to say in a nice church building here, hard to do when you're out in the trenches, uh, but we've got we've to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I think some of it was uh, just naively thinking that if we said the right things at the right time, or if we got into the right positions, everything would change. You know, 1976, Jimmy Carter was elected. Um, Newsweek called this the year of the evangelical. I think a lot of people thought um, it's all going to change now. This is it. And, um, you know, the rhetoric of some Christians was uh, just give us a few more years and um, it's all going to turn around. And of course, you get beaten up, not because uh, people physically come and assault you, but because you you realize that um, it isn't that simple. And there are, there are very subtle ways in which opponents of faith um, can um, marginalize you, um, caricature you. You know, we, one of the ways, I think, is that um, they will bring to an interview, wherever it might be, Larry King Live or something, he's, he's more fair than most of them, but, you know, uh, some person who doesn't know the first thing about science to discuss evolution, or they'll bring somebody who doesn't know the first thing about um, environmental issues uh, to talk about a Christian view of the environment. And it's embarrassing, because they're just the wrong people up there. Um, and, uh, that, you know, some of that is just an accident. I think some of that is, is um, planned. So we, you know, um, I think another way, one more way, and I know the time's running out, um, is we might have thought individual conversions will be enough. Um, if enough people like Chuck Colson, you know, and Bob Dylan, wherever he is now, um, and, you know, the high-profile people got converted. This is going to bring change, you know. But change, as I was trying to suggest, is much more than individual conversions spilling over. It, it's structural. And, um, you, know, poor, I feel, you know, poor Bob Dylan, he was, he was changed, and then he was asked to be the evangelical guru on everything. And he was just starting out as a baby Christian. And uh, that may be one of the reasons he was kind of, he decided to go back underground. Um, because individual conversion is fabulous, it's wonderful, you just love it, and that's what God wants. But it's not the agent of social change. Um, there's got to be carefully thought out strategies like, like this. So those are some of the ways you, you learn, you get beaten up a bit, and then you think maybe God's doing it in a different way. Um, yeah.